Welcome to Urban Dharma, the podcast, where suffering is optional. Hi, this is Reverend Kustler coming to you from downtown Los Angeles, from the International Buddhist Meditation Center in the heart of Koreatown. It's a warm October day. The Santa Anas have blown in. We have low humidity and high temperatures. A couple days ago, I went to the UCLA Medical Center and interviewed the director of the Spiritual Care Department at the UCLA Medical Center, Reverend Sandra Yarlot. We've known each other for a little over six years, and I asked her if she'd be willing to uh, do an interview with me, and she said she'd be happy to. Her office is rather busy, so we went across the street to the UCLA Botanical Gardens, which uh, is a park-like setting squirrels and trees and shrubs and it was a warm day that day as well so you might hear a little background noise but the voices came through loud and clear we talked about some of the challenges as she faces being the director of the spiritual care department in charge of training and and organizing the chaplains some of the challenges the patients uh, find when they come into the hospital and and have a terminal illness or or just uh need to get well. And so what you're about to hear is that interview, my interview with Reverend Sandra Yarlott, the director of the Spiritual Care Department at the UCLA Medical Center. I'm sitting here with Sandy, and we're in a little uh, botanical park across from the UCLA Medical Center. Uh, Sandy is the director of the spiritual care office at UCLA Medical Center, and she consented to do an interview with me for a podcast. Um, We are in Los Angeles, of course, so we might have Los Angeles sounds in the background, but I think we're both uh, good enough speakers, loud enough speakers, that it shouldn't be a problem. So, Sandy, first of all, thank you for agreeing to do an interview with me. And we came to the the Spiritual Care Committee just around the same time. I think it was about six years ago. That's correct. Was it? That's right. And and so what were you doing uh, before you came here, and why did you accept such a challenging position? I think the reason I accepted this position was... um, my commitment at that point to interfaith, um, multi-faith, multicultural work. Mm. Um, when the uh, director of the department was retiring, called me and asked me if I would consider coming down here because um, he felt this was an environment that could really be developed fully in a with a um, multi-faith. Um, multicultural team of spiritual caregivers and um, he knew that was my commitment um, and what I had decided to dedicate my life to. Good. So he invited me to come for that reason. And when you got here how many different religions were represented uh, uh, in the spiritual care committee or the Mm -hmm. chaplains program? Mm -hmm. Uh, We'd have Muslim, Buddhist, Christian, um, um, Jewish. Um, I think those were the four faiths. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. And and 
what does a person need to do to become a chaplain trainee at UCLA? Uh, you would um, do four years of college. Mm -hmm. You would have three years of master's work, or you would be in the process of getting your three years of master's um, training. And then you come here to do um, either uh, three months or a year clinical supervision um, with someone like myself or my colleague, Reverend Schnell. Okay. And after speaking to the people that, uh, that want to become chaplains here, what, what are some of the reasons they would want to be a chaplain at a medical center? You know, it's... Um, it's not something you wake up and say, gee, I think I'll be a hospital chaplain. <laughs> I think it's something that, um, maybe I'll, I'll speak for myself, it's something that happens in your own internal process. And I think earlier in my life I wasn't quiet enough to be a hospital chaplain. And when you say quiet enough to people listening to this podcast, what do you mean by that? Well, I think as I learned to... Um, pray, meditate, and become quiet in myself, it opened up a space to be able to meet people that were sick or dying. Before then, before I think I cultivated that interior space for myself, I don't think I could be as effective or as available um, to accompany people who are sick and dying. Okay, so there was a little aversion to that before? Right. You started to quiet? Much more extroverted yeah. uh -huh. um, type of service. Okay. Okay. And so the people that would be applying for a, a, cha a hospital chaplain would perhaps have an idea of uh, compassionate service. Exactly. Uh, being of service to people who are in need. Uh, um, that actually life-threatening mm -hmm. uh, situations they find themselves in. Right. And it, it, do you find that uh, they all make it, or is there a dropout rate? Many, are people surprised yeah. how difficult it is? People are very surprised how difficult it is. And some people know right away this isn't what they're called to do. It's uh. too hard. And so there's also a part of it in which um, you, you continually are able to cultivate a deeper place in yourself to stay present to the pain and the suffering that you need to witness when you do this work. Or you say, this is too hard and I don't, you know, I'm not up for the work it would take to cultivate a space deep enough to witness this much pain and suffering. Okay. So a lot of the training has to do with how do you witness this much suffering? How do you witness this much pain and um, not carry it away with you, mm -hmm. not try to take responsibility for it, not try to fix it. Mm -hmm. How do you just be with and let that be the person's journey and not take it away? Mm -hmm. and it's, it's, um, I think it's a very, um, it's a difficult and it's a very rewarding yeah. um, privilege. And do you have classes? Uh, uh, do you give presentations to help people come to that place of just being with the suffering and not accepting it as theirs? We do. That's what the training's about. Okay. Um, the clinical pastoral education CPE training is about. Okay. Is um, 
actually writing your visits up and seeing where mm -hmm. you wanted to run away or you diverted the conversation instead of being with. And mm -hmm. um, we also offer didactics that help you understand the grief process and to understand um, what's hope about and what's faith about and what's yeah. spiritual practice about when someone is facing a chronic um, illness or facing a, a terminal diagnosis or facing their death. It, it strikes me when you say they, when, when the chaplain wants to turn away because it's just becoming too real or um, their issues might be are being stimulated. How, how do you encourage them to, to, to stay present and not turn away? Well, I tell all our trainees here that I expect two things of them, show up <laughs> and be present. <laughs> so there and you go. that's what we work on okay. in their training is, so what keeps them from showing up and yeah. what keeps them from being present? And so I think a lot of people come into working with sick and dying people because they do have this sense of I want to serve and I want to be this, you know, be in compassionate service. Yeah. And yet what comes up is um, what you have to face is yourself. You have to face the things that come in, up in yourself that keep you from being present, from keep you from witnessing this much suffering, that keep you from witnessing this much pain. And so it's about seeing what comes up and saying, is this something I need to heal? Is this something I need to work on? So it doesn't get in the way mm. of me being able to be present with them. Person. And are are the chaplains allowed to cry? They are allowed to cry, I think, because we're humans. Yes. And um, so um, I think we cry with people. Mm -hmm. I think there are tears. Now, I don't encourage a chaplain to break down sobbing in a room. Sure. So that if they get to that point, I suggest that they um, say, I need to leave for a few minutes and I'll be back. And I suggest to them, Go to the nearest restroom and do your sobbing, crying, splash some cold water on your face, and go back in there. Okay, good. Good. So it's not running away. It's really um, accepting the sadness that you mm -hmm. feel uh, 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 and expressing it not in front of the patient, but in, in privacy, mm -hmm. and then go back and, and mm -hmm. still be present. Exactly. And still accept. Uh, exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, if it's just tears uh -huh. or just the eyes watering up, I think you can stay in the room and be present. But if sure. it's really going to spill over into a sobbing mm -hmm. because it's so tragic and so sad, um, I just encourage them to stay with what is in the present moment. And if what is in the present moment is a need for this wailing, sobbing to come over, find an appropriate place sure. to do that, attend to it, and come back and be present. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like a Buddhist practice, isn't it? <laughs> it sounds similar. <laughs> it's might have familiar. some similarities. <laughs> What's true. in the present moment? Can I yeah. stay with it? Exactly. And then it changes to something else. Yeah, and it always does change, mm -hmm. according to Buddhism anyway. What, what have you learned being in the midst of all this pain and suffering, and, and also loss of life? But, but first... You know, uh, the Buddha said we are all subject to sickness, old age, and death. And you're in a profession that, you know, uh, is involved with sickness and death every day. 
so in your personal journey what what have you learned from all the people that you've seen who are sick do you find there's a resistance to being sick by most patients they they feel like victims why me do some of them come to a place of acceptance after a while and see it as part of their journey this getting well even though it might be therapy that requires you know chemotherapy radiation months if not years of rehabilitation to get back to where they used to be what have you learned by watching people go through all those different stages it's amazing you see the whole continuum because you see the people that want to deny it and and even though you know everything looks the the worst it can be they are denying it you see those that want to resist it why me you know why would God a loving God do this to somebody and then you see the continuum of people that see their disease as a gift so there are those people and those that see it as a gift are your teachers because they teach you so much about what it means to practice a faith to practice whether it's prayer whether it's meditation and how they can continually go to their practice in the midst of whether it's chemo or in the midst of painful treatments in the midst of the worst news coming in they find something deeper that creates a peace and a calm and a stillness in them that is just remarkable it's a privilege to witness and they become your teachers so you see that there are many different ways we can face our death Mm -hmm. and we can face it kicking and screaming we can face it like an angry adolescent or we can face it in with a peace that really passes understanding of the rational mind when a patient says why me why would a loving God do this to me what do you encourage your chaplains to respond do they do, do they do they have to give meaning to that statement or is it just enough to listen to the statement and shake your head I um, want them to hear it mm-hmm. I want them not to minimize that that is really where the energy is for this person mm. and I invite them to be curious about it oh okay so I invite them to um, enter into a dialogue with the person to explore um, what has what what are their notions or ideas of God How, where did they come to those have they always worked have they changed or have they changed in this moment and to kind of get curious and explore where you know kind of dig out where this what brings them to this question and the chaplain would be more like a sounding board mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. let the patient sort of work through these issues mm-hmm. um, and allowing not getting involved necessarily in the theological aspects of it right. because I guess that could be messy mm-hmm. for chaplain to get too theological right well it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't help uh-huh. um, because 
you know, I can get clear about my theology, but what's important is for the patient to get clear about what they believe. Exactly. And is is what they believe holding them and supporting them and sustaining them in this moment? And if it isn't, maybe did they want to look at what they believe? Mm, okay. But if what they believe is holding them and supporting them and sustaining them, there isn't any need to sure to question that. Now, now, hearing that, one of the questions I have would be if if the patient's terminal and there's a question about uh, their particular religious perspective, do they have enough time to get a new one? Do they have enough time to practice the new one? Or would it be more skillful to... Um, Support the old notions, and maybe in a maybe in a new way, mm -hmm. to give a new meaning in life to the to the religion that's worked up until this point, mm -hmm. rather than saying, well, maybe you should be, blah blah blah. Mm -hmm. Very few people, I think, change their foundational beliefs. Okay. But they maybe expand or change their interpretation of mm. them. So maybe what they do is come back and revisit, well, I believe this, mm -hmm. but I had interpreted it in this very narrow way. Uh, maybe I, I can interpret it in a more expansive way, and then it holds them and supports them in, in, a, in a larger way than this narrow way of interpreting it. Got it. So I think not many people do change their beliefs, yeah. but they maybe they revisit them and reinterpret them in less narrow ways. Okay. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. uh, interesting question for you. What happens when an atheist is one of your patients? They um, get a visit from us, just <laughs> like uh, everybody, everybody else. else. <laughs> and if they would like to have a conversation. Uh -huh. And um, when I first encountered atheists, when I was on the floor every day, I, you know, you oftentimes you come in, you say, oh, I'm the chaplain on this unit, just want to let you know we're here and would love to visit if you'd like to. And and uh, oftentimes the atheists say, I'm an atheist, I don't need a chaplain. And, and my response always was, well, that's good. That's, that's good. Tell me about the God you don't believe in. Mm. And I've had wonderful conversations with atheists. And when they tell me about the God they don't believe in, we oftentimes find a lot of common ground. Sure, sure. And, and I have found in my discussions with atheists that they know a lot about God. Oh, absolutely. They're just sort of fixated on that, mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. They, they're they they're very deep and yeah. expansive conversations. They are. Mm -hmm. It's fascinating. Mm -hmm. in, in your training of the, of the chaplains and the diversity aspect, in Los Angeles at UCLA, uh, everybody comes here from every ethnic background, from every religious tradition. How do you uh, deal with patients that might be of a religion that you don't have a chaplain on the floor? Do you have a list of uh, people that are volunteers who are willing to come here? We do. We try to cultivate relationships with a broad range of people that we can call in. And um, I think we do a really good job of that for most of the um, mainline faiths and mainline denominations. Mm -hmm. I think it's harder to find resources for indigenous religions, um, mm. but we do have those also. Those we have to dig a little deeper. Okay. But we usually can find 
we also can usually find elders or religious leaders for those that have indigenous wonderful so if if a person was going to a hospital not necessarily UCLA but any but any hospital and and they were they wanted to make contact with that spiritual care unit in the hospital do you know if most hospitals have a spiritual care department and and if so what's 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 the procedure do you call ahead do they come and visit you automatically or do you have to put in request it's different for every hospital at UCLA when you are admitted you're asked would you like to indicate a religious preference if you do that's written down then that's done in the missions area when you get on the floor the nurse does an initial assessment of every patient gets assessed by a nurse once on the floor and one of the questions that the nurses will ask is would you like a visit from an interfaith chaplain regarding your spiritual needs during the stay and if they say yes we get an electronic referral sent to our office okay not all hospitals are at that level of assessment most hospitals will have a chaplain or more and some hospitals the chaplains just actually go out and introduce themselves to patients just to let them know they're available if they would like a visit okay but you could always ask your nurse and the Joint Commission that accredits hospitals JCAHO the Joint Commission that accredits hospitals has made made it a patient's right to have their spiritual needs attended to so the hospital has to have some means of attending to your spiritual needs while you're in the hospital okay so if they don't have a person on site they have to have a way to call people in for you okay and and as far as you know a lot of people listening to this podcast can be Buddhist as far as you know are there many Buddhist chaplains available in the hospitals in the Los Angeles area I think there's not and I think that's where we have to do the work okay is I know at the national meeting coming up in Tampa Florida for my professional association my our organization has been in an intense dialogue with the the religious leaders of Islam across the United States so there's going to be a whole pre-day conference on meeting with the religious leaders of Islam to find out how do we reach out to get the Muslim community more involved in training as hospital chaplains and being available as hospital chaplains and I think the next focus for us is going to be the Buddhist community to be intentional about starting a dialogue with Buddhist leaders across the United States and then having a dialogue with how now do we start to reach out because you have to get the key leadership educated about what hospital chaplains are and why you even want to do this work and then those leaders I think can be supportive of people in the community coming to do training to be a hospital chaplain okay so it's sort of working from the top down contact the leaders first 
educate them. Mm -hmm. They can educate their congregations and support them. Right. And then hopefully individual hospitals are working from the bottom up. (laughs) So hopefully it's coming (laughs) both ways. So as individual centers are making contact with individual Buddhists like yourself Uh or individual Muslims, Hindus, um, people of many different faiths, they are going to their communities saying, I got this training, this is a special kind of service, it's you know really meaningful, and so people are coming in that way, uh-huh. and then hopefully we're working from both directions. Excellent. One of the things I found uh, being uh, a Buddhist chaplain is the fact that uh, a lot of Americans who have converted to Buddhism um, don't necessarily have the same resources that an ethnic Buddhist would have. If you're a Thai Buddhist or a Cambodian Buddhist or Sri Lankan Buddhist, oftentimes there's a rather large ethnic community supporting the temple. And, and you end up in the hospital, and, and if you call the temple, then there are many people, uh, best case scenario, who will come to see you. But a lot of Westerners, a lot of Americans who are, are practicing meditation, maybe occasionally going to Zendo, occasionally going to a temple for service, when they get sick, they consider themselves to be a Buddhist, but they don't necessarily want to see an ethnic Buddhist in the same way a lot of ethnic Buddhists don't necessarily want to see an American. Um, what would you say to an American Buddhist, a Western Buddhist, who is a patient in your hospital, and would you, do you approach them and say, well, what kind of Buddhist are you? What's, what's your background in Buddhism? And the reason you ask them that would to be able to find somebody who would be most appropriate to serve them? Absolutely. That's the, that's the key um, thing that we try to teach is doing good assessment. Okay. And so I, I come in and I meet you and you say I'm a Buddhist. I don't make assumptions about that. Okay. So I, I ask you, tell me about your practice. Tell, you know, is there a particular kind of Buddhism you practice? What does your, how do you individually practice that? Mm-hmm. Um, now that you're in the hospital, are there barriers to your being able to practice? If there are, like, you know, if a Buddhist says, well, you know, I always meditate at this time of the day, but this is when they're coming in to give me my meds, the chaplain can then be the advocate with the nursing staff and the physicians to say, can we move the medication time so that they can have their spiritual practice time before the meds come in? And so. That's part of the spiritual assessment is hearing how you're practicing, how you want that practice to support you, and if you want contact with a leader, what would do you have your own temple? Do you have your own um, community that you're sitting with? Is do you want us to call one of those mm-hmm. leaders in? Is there someone particular in your community? Like you want? a teacher or something? That exactly, you have a with. exactly. Do you have a relationship with someone that we can contact for you and mm-hmm. and try to get them in here for you? And if they don't, what would be the best fit? You know, do you want someone that's Vietnamese speaking? Do you want someone that's English speaking? Depending on what your cultural background is. Sure. And then we work to meet that need. And if they're a Buddhist, and if they're a vegan or vegetarian, mm-hmm. um, would would they have a problem at UCLA Medical Center getting a, uh, the, the proper diet for them? No. Okay. Absolutely. So we have um, kosher, and uh-huh. we're working now to get halal um, uh-huh. meals, and we have vegetarian, and um, particularly if it's a religious issue, um, um, we can even make arrangements with food and nutrition to get 
get some special foods for you wow so we really really try to do holistic care excellent uh, Might not have it the first day you're there. <laughs> Take us a little bit, but, that's right. but we'll work on it. But the effort's there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the intention is there. That's mm -hmm. good. Uh, I remember uh, listening to you speak one time to a group of uh, chaplains about um, end-of-life issues. And it was fascinating to me because I know in the, in the Buddhist community, there are, in an ideal situation, we would like to have maybe a couple days to be with the body and and do prayers and chanting and and reflection and grieving but in a hospital there are so many rules and regulations because of state and city governments that it's not necessarily easy to allow the grieving relatives to stay with the body now how do you how do you see that do you do you see that as sort of an important aspect of um, of the human community in a way of making sense of this death and being able to be with the, the dying. I know my own personal perspective until I became a Buddhist and started to practice was, well, it, we'll go visit them at the funeral. We'll go visit them when we put them in the ground. And, and, and the point when they die and get to the mortuary is something that I never thought of very much. But apparently, as you talked about, when you're in a hospital and somebody dies, there are a lot of issues that, that need to be addressed. Could you just talk about a few of those and, and how you've uh, come to find a, a happy meeting place between government uh, regulations and the requirements that the family might have? That's why I think it's good to have a chaplain involved if there is a death mm -hmm. and it is a faith tradition that has practices around being with the body after actually the pronouncement of death because the chaplain will advocate in every way possible to get you the space you need to do what needs to be done. So, um, if, say a Buddhist is dying and we, um, we really ask for that support to have those they want chanting around the bedside and to try to keep the room as peaceful and quiet as we can. After the person dies, if there's more prayers and more chanting that needs to be done. We are always in the goat. We're kind of that buffer with the staff to say they really have more. You know, they would. They need to continue to be with the body. And how long do we have? And do you need this room right away? Can we have this room till midnight? Can we have this room till tomorrow morning? And um, uh, some some uh, traditions want somebody with that body at all times. So we'll negotiate. Who, who here wants to be designated to be with this body? And so um, once we need that room, uh, we also have a viewing room. So we might be able to move the body from the hospital room to the viewing room and okay. extend the time you're able to be with the body in the viewing room. At some point, that body has to go to the morgue for refrigeration. And you have a morgue in the we hospital? We have a morgue in the hospital. Okay. So if it's, some, if it's a tradition where they want somebody with that body at all times, We'll then negotiate with the morgue. Can this person come and sit, literally, by the refrigerator really? <laughs> um, drawers yeah. um, to, to be with it till the till the mortuary comes for the pickup, and then then we have then they will have to ne negotiate with the mortuary. Can they ride with the body to the funeral home? So we okay. try to support that in whatever way um, supports the religious practice being able to happen. 
Okay. And it won't be able to happen ideally, sure. but it, we try to support it at the level we can within the regulations and the limits we have. Okay. And what do you tell the chaplains uh, when it comes to the end-of-life issues? How, how do they respond to that with the family? I, I know the person dying has issues, and we talked a little bit about that, but the family members also have a lot of issues and that may or may not be resolved, and uh, a lot of emotion. It's a difficult time, that transition. How are the chaplains trained to deal with that? Are they proactive? Do they get involved? Do they uh, stand on the sidelines and, and wait to be invited? What, what would you say to the chaplains about that? That's the art. I call this the art part. Okay. The art part of the practice of, of being present. So um, how do you be present and witness their grief without interfering, without um, going in where you're not invited, being sensitive, um, and offering support when you think it might be needed? You know, sometimes support looks like just putting your hand on that person's shoulder or their arm. Um, just that human touch just allows them to know someone's here with me, I am not alone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, I think in the grieving process, um, a lot of words get in the way. It really is, um, can we be in a space where we can both be comfortable with each other that you can have that internal sense of loss tears whatever way you need to express that and and feel whatever support you need for it so it's being comfortable in a in, in a in a place of silence exactly you don't necessarily need to keep talking in those times and in fact i think talking gets in the way yeah. because talking then engages the brain and um, brings you out of a more heartfelt place yeah. so how do you stay in that heartfelt place and and if you are going to speak a word I always say make sure that word comes from your deepest heart place because yeah. the word spoken from the deepest heart place is received in the deepest heart place uh -huh. but if it's something that's constructed with the mind and it's clever or it's whatever, even though it's um, skillfully done, it won't be received in that way. It, it, it will distract, I think, and bring the person out of the grief place that they're in. So it sounds to me after hearing that, the, about the only way you can train is to simply do it. That's why we do it. It's just <laughs> we to be do in it. the room. Mm -hmm. All those concepts of what might happen are probably are not useful because those things probably don't happen. Do you find it to be unique each time someone dies? Absolutely, and that's why hospital chaplains are trained in this model. We call it an action reflection model. Ah. You go out and you do it, and we're all the living human documents. I'm the living human document as the chaplain. The patient's the living human document. The family are the living human documents, and then we have we have this meeting together whether it's around death or suffering or getting a diagnosis and then we come back and we sit in a circle and reflect on what came up what worked what didn't work where was I skillful where was I not very skillful hmm. and in that reflection process hopefully we can take that reflection with us into the next time we go to the next room or the next situation so we call it an action reflection model because you can't read a book and 
have any book tell you the complexity of the situations you're going to encounter. Sure. So you just go do it, and then we reflect, and then we see what we can learn from where we felt it worked and was skillful, where we felt it was didn't work and we weren't skillful, what could we learn from that, and then hopefully we can take that learning with us into the next situation. It's interesting you mentioned the circle. When I interviewed uh, Wendy E. Gilku, the abbot of Zensen of Los Angeles, in her community they have uh, circles once a month, sometimes more often, where the residents gather. And there's a talking stick of some sort that they pass around. And and what she brought up, which I thought was interesting, and I, I'd like to hear your uh, uh, response to this, and, and if you do it as well. She said when, when people are talking in the circle, they're not talking to the people. They're literally talking to the circle, that they're talking to the silence of the circle. So it's a non-judgmental sort of sharing and exchange that the members of the circle are not there to condemn or condone, but simply to, uh, I guess, uh, be present in silence. Do you work it that way as well, with with the chaplains in the circle? In the in the training program, um, I think that we sit in the circle um, because it represents that we are all human and we're all in this together, and mm -hmm. we sit there to be present with one another. Um, however, if if in your sharing you've been in an encounter and something came up and it, and it touches me that, well, it seems like it relates to something you told us earlier about your story. I do say to you, do you think that connects with what you said in your story last week or whatever? So that um, we also, I think... Now, when you say story last mm -hmm. week, what does we that share, mean? We all share our stories Each together. Week? Well, we, we share our story, uh, you know, just um, like a half hour kind of overview of kind of our journey so that we okay. know who the people are sitting in the circle. Okay. And then we're making a commitment to support one another on this journey together, mm -hmm. this training journey together. I see. So, um, so, you know, and more of our story comes out is because as I do encounters and I say, you know, when I visited that young man, it was like visiting my son. And it, so I really had to... Um, keep paying attention and being aware of how I was seeing my son in that bed and, it's, and I had to keep reminding myself this is not my son this is another young man um, and so because we have shared our stories and we share our stories pieces of them as, as, as we reflect on our work we also support one another in that sharing so I might say Gee, that seems similar to what came up when you visited that family two weeks ago. Do you see any similarities about what came up for you in this encounter with what came up for you two weeks ago with that family? Mm, so you're so encouraging I, their awareness. Exactly. We're yeah. trying. We're trying to um, support each other's deeper awareness. Okay. Okay. Deeper awareness. Yeah. Interesting. And we also have circles where we don't speak. So. Oh. There's different formats, okay. so we the circle can take on different formats. Okay. And um, sometimes we um, we have a thing called uh, story theology, where you just tell a story, a piece of your story, mm. something from your story. In that circle, 
it's not about us responding to your story or trying to ask you about it or encourage your awareness. That we're really speaking to the circle just as to be a witness to it. Okay, I see. Mm -hmm. and, and this has proven to be useful, I am assuming that the people responding in a very positive way, the chaplains, and learning and growing? Well, this method has been used for about 50 years now to train, really? to train hospital chaplains. Wow. It has been taken to Europe, India, Africa. Um, I worked three months in Hong Kong mm. um, in three different hospitals in Hong Kong as they initiated um, similar type training programs uh -huh. um, in the hospitals in Hong Kong. Um, so it is a model that has been translated in many countries um, and gets changed a little bit for the cultural norms of that country but um, maintains some of the basic elements of this training method. Oh, wonderful. So, now, having been at UCLA for six years, and going on seven, and next year transferring to the new hospital, which is almost finished, I suppose, um, what do you see some of the challenges uh, in the new hospital? I, I know there's less room available over there, so the chaplains may not have a chance to have an office, perhaps. I know too when the chaplains, I, I've heard anyway, that when the chaplains have overnight assignments here, that, that sometimes finding a sleeping room can be difficult. So do you, what are some of the challenges you see with, with the new uh, hospital, and do you think that will affect patient care at all? Well, I believe our presence in the hospital affects patient care. <laughs> in a positive way. In, in a positive way. Yeah. Because I think the higher the level of technology, the more you need the human touch. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And so this will be an even higher level of technology hospital. So almost all the rooms in this new hospital will be ICU rooms. Right. So the higher the technology, the more I think you have to have the human touch to balance it out. And so I see us as absolutely essential to the healing mission of the hospital. Because resource space is so limited and resources are so limited, I have to be very articulate to the administration why we need the space and why we need the support to be there. And so that's the harder job. Okay. I see. And that's a part of that's a part of how I'm serving. The, the larger good is by making sure that space is there. Wonderful. And could you just talk a little bit about your insights into why technology requires more human, um, uh, um, uh, how technology can leave the human element out, I suppose. And your job is to keep it there and support that. Because I think um, technology is moving and developing so fast right yeah. now that um, we haven't had time to set, sit as a larger human community and say what are the ethical, what are the moral, what are the human issues that, that this is taking us out to the edge of. And, and we bump up against things and we try to get an ethics committee together and see if we can figure it out. But, but um, to me, keeping that human relationship and that human interaction grounded in respecting that person as a whole person, including their spiritual practice, 
and practices and beliefs um, holds a foundation that we don't have with the technology because the technology is moving so fast it doesn't always have an ethical spiritual foundation underneath it it lacks a heart doesn't it yeah yeah mm -hmm. so we don't so, want to forget the heart exactly yeah that's mm -hmm. that's interesting I hadn't thought about it in that way mm -hmm. after being a chaplain and, and a director of uh, uh, chaplains at a major medical university how do you look at religion in the healing process is it helpful is it hurtful does it get in the way sometimes is it always useful I think sometimes religion gets in the way because I think people um, practice religions that have very constricted um, beliefs mm -hmm. that um, are so narrow they can't hold the reality that they're facing so the, the two can't come together and those that have practices and, and faith beliefs and religions that are more expansive usually have something that holds them deeper than the reality of the situation they're facing so those more expansive religions allow for sickness and death it's not a failure exactly okay mm -hmm. so if a person um, comes to the hospital and they're non-religious and then they find religion in the hospital is it too late I think it's never too late <laughs> good, good I think it's never too late okay. and oftentimes what I hear from people in the hospital is you know there there were some key questions I was always going to get around to answering um, but I never got around to it. But you know, now that I'm faced with this terminal diagnosis, those questions seem the most important questions I could answer right now. You know, Chaplain, I don't know what I believe about what's going to happen to me when I die. I don't know what I believe about the dying process. I don't know what I believe about how I should approach it or be in it. And they were always questions I was going to get around to, but now it seems like the most important thing I can answer for myself. Mm. And those are the conversations that we get to have. And when you spoke, I think, earlier about sometimes illness is a gift mm -hmm. uh, because it allows us to take a time out from our life right. and, and go sometimes to the deeper, mm -hmm. the, yeah. the deeper questions. The deeper questions and get back to the things that are the most meaningful to us yeah. you know of all I've been doing this work for 15 years of all the people that I've met that were dying never ever has anyone said to me I wish I'd worked more <laughs> people have said to me I wish I would have spent more time with the ones I loved I mm. wish I um, would have taken more time for rest I wish I would have done some of the things I decided were really important to me that I never could find the time for but I've never heard anyone tell me I wish I'd have worked more wow. Wow. well Sandy I know you have to get back to work but I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to sit down with me in this beautiful park with, this, with the squirrels running back and forth 
tree it's beautiful oh yeah that tree is great and it's today in l a it's it's projected to be ninety degrees so where it's like a summer day for us and and as i talked to earlier in the week i asked if i could have a second interview with you because i would like to talk something about your life and how you ended up here and with that would you be agreeable to that i would be agreeable in the near future sometime i would wonderful well thank you again and i guess i'll see you at the next i want to thank you reverend kusala for being a part of the spiritual care team at ucla medical center you are what helps us be able to live into the vision of what we have of you know buddhists muslims christians jews Hindus all working side by side um, with the um, with a common value of service. Yeah. Well, thank you. So I want to thank you for your work at UCLA Medical Center. Oh, thank you very much. It's wonderful. So until we see each other again, um, be well. Well, that's it. That was my interview with Reverend Sandra Yarlat, the director of the spiritual care department at the UCLA Medical Center. Hope you found it interesting. Hope you found it useful. If you'd like to know more about me, you can visit my website, www.kusala.info. That's K-U-S-A-L-A dot info. If you'd like to look at and listen to the other podcasts I've done and a couple videos, please visit dharmatalks.info. That's dharmatalks.info. I also have some free ebooks you can download at buddhabooks.info. Free ebooks at buddhabooks.info. And if you'd like to email me, my email address is kusla at urbandharma.org. That's kusla at urbandharma.org. Well, that's it. That's this podcast. Until the next time, until the next podcast, be happy, be peaceful, and most of all, be free from suffering.